The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 12, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 13. We're going to do verses 1 through 5 today. If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. How is it that people get so easily swayed from what is right and proper? And how can people be kept from being cunningly deceived by others? The answer is to know what is going on in the world around you in relation to whatever subject is being presented. If a person doesn't want to be deceived concerning financial matters, he will make himself aware of whatever financial issue is being presented to him. It could be buying real estate in an area that he'd never visited. If such is the case, he would be wise to make a visit there before buying in order to make himself aware of what he was getting into. The smooth talker is there to cheat otherwise. Such is true with 10,000 other things you may be presented with during your life. If you are unaware of the events surrounding you concerning a matter, you are bound to be duped. In 1504, Christopher Columbus was able to use an eclipse to convince the natives of Jamaica that his god was angry with them because they had stopped giving him and his men help and supplies. In this, they were in real trouble and they were in desperate need. In order to make the natives more compliant in this regard, he consulted his astronomical tables and found that there would be a total eclipse of the moon on February 29th of that year. This was based on the time in Nuremberg, Germany, but Columbus was aware of things concerning the subject at hand and he was able to calculate when it would occur over them. 
In knowing this, he then threatened the locals by saying his God would take away the moon as a sign of his anger at their lack of help, setting the time that it would occur. It did. The moon disappeared from the sky. During that time, Columbus said he would go into his cabin to pray that God would return the moon to them. What he actually did was to watch the hourglass until the 48 minutes of the eclipse were up. Just as the moon was supposed to emerge, he came back out and told them that he had effectively convinced God that he should forgive the locals. His ploy worked, and from that point on, they received all the supplies they needed. Eventually, they were picked up and they were taken back to Spain. That's a true story. Our text first comes from 2 Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Based on how you take what he did, Columbus's actions could be considered the work of a false prophet. Probably not, but it was cunningly deceptive. However you look at it, it was the effort of a man who was aware of how things worked in the natural world. False prophets also know how things work and they will exploit those things in order to deceive others in various ways. A true false prophet, which sounds odd, doesn't it, is a person who speaks in the name of the true God, but who twists, misuses, and misrepresents what the true God has revealed. This may be, and usually is, for his own personal gain or exaltation. It may be that he is a perverse person that just wants to see others harmed. False prophets also speak in the name of false gods to turn people away from the true God. In the end, the Bible speaks of such things and of such people. They are out there. They have their own agenda, and they use the lack of understanding of God's people concerning what is going on in the world around them in relation to what he has presented, meaning what is stated in his word against them. When one is uninformed, unschooled, or misdirected concerning the word of God, that person is open to whatever false teaching comes his way. This is a certain truth that is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the Lord your God is testing you. It's verses 1 through 3. In our passage today is a short chiasm that will help us better understand the expectations of the Lord. This is from Deuteronomy 13, 2 through 5. It's entitled, You Shall Walk After the Lord Your God, and I call it Contrasts and Confirmations. I found this on the day I typed this sermon, which was 21 December of last year. A, the outside of the chiasm, he spoke to you saying, let us walk after other gods, and A, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. B, which you have not known, unknown matters. And then the Lord your God is a known matter. C, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And C, but that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. D, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And D, fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And the anchor verse is you shall walk after the Lord your God. 
The very last words of chapter 12 said, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. That serves as an introduction and a warning to what is now stated. It is the false prophets and false teachers who are very likely to add to or take away from this word as given by God. And so they are now addressed. The chapter before us is logically dividing into three separate sections. Each, verses 1, 6, and 12 begins with the word key, translated by the New King James Version as if in each instance. Such an event would then be possible but not certain. In other words, suppose this were to happen, or should this come about? Young's literal translation of the Bible takes it as a certainty. He translates each instance as when. In other words, when this comes about. Looking back from our time and knowing the history of Israel, using the word when certainly fits well. But the words now are based on what was stated in the previous verse. Moses has been admonishing the people to observe what he says holding fast to the unity of worship towards the Lord within the entire community by avoiding idolatry, pagan rituals, and the customs of those they will dispossess. Therefore, one would think Moses' intent is, should this happen, you are to do this. And yet, reading Moses' words in the Song of Moses of chapter 32, he already knows that the people's proclivity towards going astray and so translating it as when very well may be what is on his mind, even as he is speaking to the people. When this happens, you are to do this. If I, this is my, my thought, if I were to choose a word that would convey both intents of what is presented, it would be the word though. Thus, it is a challenge to write conduct and a rather certain fact that such conduct will be needed. Though this happens, you are to do this. This may seem like overanalyzing a single word, but it is important to the overall scope of what is being conveyed. The people are shown challenges that must be faced by any or by all, and they are being warned in advance of how to face them. With this understood, we enter into the content of chapter 13, verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet, ki yakum navi, though arises in your singular midst, a prophet. As the pronoun is singular, Moses may be speaking to Israel collectively or to each person individually. In the end, the outcome will be the same. However, the words in your midst favor the thought of him speaking to the nation collectively. The navi or prophet is a word coming from the verb nava, meaning to prophesy. Moses is not saying that this is something either unusual now or that will be unusual in the future. Rather, being the Lord's people, it's an expected thing. However, care must be taken in accepting the prophet's words. This will be noted. The Navi has already been seen, and the position will be common in Israel. Abraham was noted as a prophet in Genesis chapter 20. Aaron was designated as Moses' prophet in Exodus 7. And the Lord openly said that prophets would be among Israel in Numbers chapter 12. Here's what it says there. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? One of the things about the prophets was that just because they uttered a word of prophecy, 
it did not mean that he understood all of what he was prophesying. This is seen, for example, in the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. In Scripture, prophets are seen to receive their prophecies in various ways, one of which was just seen from Numbers chapter 12. That is again revealed by Moses with the words of verse 1 continuing, or a dreamer of dreams, o holem halom, or dreamer of dreams. The verb is halam, and it has two separate meanings. One is to be healthy or strong. The other is to dream. Probably the verse that ties the two thoughts together the best is that of Psalm 126, verse 1. There the psalm says, When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. That word, halam. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. If one were to substitute the word dream with healthy, the two thoughts merge. We were like those who were made healthy. It is as if life were a dream state when they were brought back to their precious homeland. This state of receiving a prophecy is referred to by Elihu, a man living outside of the covenant people. He said, for God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. This, however, does not make such a person a prophet, nor should it be considered as such among those in the church. The prophetic word of God is written, it is complete, and it is sealed. There is no need for more prophecies or prophets. This is explicitly stated by the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. The implication of the writer's words is that God no longer speaks in these various ways. He has spoken. The word has been given, and we should expect no further word. This does not stop a countless stream of people from making their false prophecies on a daily basis, nor does it stop people who are unschooled in the word or unwilling to accept the word as God's full and final revelation of himself from listening to such people. I would hope for better for those who hear what the word says and who accept that what it says is sufficient for their life, their doctrine, and their conduct. And if you feel differently about this, you are entitled to be wrong. I'm not going to argue with you. Nobody is stopping you. And your walk with the Lord is all that will be harmed. The transmission of false prophecies that Moses will now warn against is something found in abundance in the Old Testament, but most especially in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, he combines the two thoughts, prophecy and dreams, into one warning, such as Jeremiah 23. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. 
and he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, everyone from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. There are a thousand churches in America right now where people are claiming prophecies. I want you to know that. And the Lord is not pleased with that attitude. To analyze all that encompasses prophets, prophecies, dreams, and visions would take an analysis of the entire Bible because the entire Bible is a book of revealing the mind of God as conveyed in the prophetic utterances of God through his people. And along with that, there are other ways God reveals himself to them. That is found in the next words. Verse 1 continues, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Here, Moses refers to the things already seen, the ot or sign and the mofet or wonder. The ot is probably derived from the word ut, which is a verb indicating consent or agreement. The ot is not something in and of itself. Rather, it is something that stands representative of something else. I'll tell you what I'm talking about real quickly is that circumcision is a sign. Circumcision is not a sign in and of itself. Jews look at circumcision and say, see, I'm circumcised, therefore I'm righteous. That is not what it pictures at all. It is a sign of something else. It is not the thing in and of itself. For example, the first time the word is used in Genesis 1, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs, ot, and seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. In saying this, the Lord was indicating that stars had varied purposes. The seasons, days, and years is completely understandable. They mark out the times of life, and we can use them to determine things, like when to plant, when it will get cold, and so on. Unless you're in Texas, then you might not figure that out. (laughs) However, they also are given by God to point to something else. That is seen in Scripture, such as in the Star of Bethlehem. It was something given to reveal that Messiah had been born. Circumcision, like I just said, is an oat or a sign. It stands representative of something else, meaning the cutting of the sin nature in man. It is thus a picture of the hope of Messiah. The mofet, or wonder, comes from yatha, or beautiful. Thus, it is something that is conspicuous, like a miracle. It is an open demonstration of something that captures the attention. Unlike the sign that points to something else, it is the thing itself. Should someone give a sign or produce a wonder? Verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Uba haot veha mofet, and comes the sign and the wonder. The words here mean that the prophet or dreamer of dreams gives a sign that is then fulfilled, or he actually produces a wonder. There's no doubt of it. What does that mean, though? Well, it depends on the next words of that person. Verse 2 continues, of which he spoke to you. The idea here is that a person could make a claim such as, this is a sign to you that you will win the lottery tomorrow, and it comes to pass. Or the person might do something like a magic trick that seems impossible to have been anything but of divine origin. 
In such an instance, one might be persuaded that this guy really has a connection with the divine. Such is seen, for example, in Acts chapter 8. Everybody knows of simony, the selling of uh, simony in the church. What comes from this guy? But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom all they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. There is a difference between how people approach such things, and the distinction should be made. Some perform what we today call magic. They make no claims that they are in connection with the divine. Instead, they devise skilled forms of misdirection, and they challenge you to figure out how they did what they did. And then there are those who claim, like Simon, that they have a great power or a divine ability to do the things that they do. In this, they elevate what they are doing above the natural world to the supernatural. It is such as this that will be the ones, verse 2 continues, saying, Let us go after other gods. Lemor nelecha achare Elohim acharim, saying, Let us walk after God's other. It is an important contrast to what will be said in verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God. In such a case, when the thing happens that he said would happen, he then says, this power came from this God or that God. He is the one we should be following. Such a person may even claim he has divine ability to tap into the universal conscience, the universe's power, or even a power that is separate and above the created order itself. In Daniel 2 and elsewhere, the king had a dream. He wanted to know the interpretation of the dream, and so he called an entire group of people like this, defined as the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. They claimed to have the ability to perform supernatural deeds, or that they had the ability to tap into the supernatural or even the divine. The king obviously questioned this, and so instead of just asking for the meaning of his dream that he described to them, he asked them to first tell him what he had dreamed and then to explain its meaning to him. In a comedy of back and forth waffling on their part, the king saw through their supposed claims. Here's what it says in Daniel 2. I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. As stupid as falling for this in the first place sounds, how guilty are we? meaning society in general, or any one of us, of being tempted in this exact way. Tarot cards, hearing someone say that Allah accomplished the victory, or simply believing a prosperity preacher who is, by default, preaching a false gospel. Daniel and his three friends with him could have joined the ranks with these people, and they would have been found as false as the others were. Instead, they trusted in the Lord to provide an answer to the king's demand. They petitioned the Lord, and the Lord provided what they needed. 
telling what dream the king had and then properly explaining it to him. In this, Daniel took no credit for what he had received. He rightly pointed out that the others were unable to receive what he had received and that it was God who provided the answer, implying that those charlatans had no connection with God. Here's what it says in Daniel 2, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In this, Daniel did what was right and proper. He exalted the God of Israel, whom he knew, and of this precept for Israel, Albert Barnes rightly states the following. The Lord had said, thou shalt have none other gods but me. A prophet is here supposed who invites the people to go after other gods. To such a one, no credit is under any circumstances to be given, even should he show signs and wonders to authenticate his doctrine. The standing rule of faith and practice has been laid down once for all, that the people were to hold fast. The prophet who propounded another rule could only be an imposter. Moses now warns against those who would do otherwise and follow after false gods. Verse 2 continues, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Such things as this, or a million other possibilities, happen on any given day. They happen to believers and unbelievers alike. We see the incredible, and we respond to it based on our faith in the Lord, in our trust in who he is, or how well-versed we are in his word, and in how willing we are to hold solely to that word. For many, the connection with the true God does not exist. For others, their grounding in the faith or their knowledge of the word is so minimal that they are swayed from what is right. In this, they follow what the false prophet recommends, going after his false gods to serve them. If you think I'm making this up, just look at what happened at Jonestown. Those people were in a church by a guy that claimed to be a minister. Next thing you know, they're drinking the Kool-Aid, right? But the word is spoken. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The Hebrew is emphatic. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams. It is intended to set such a person off from one who is a true prophet or receives a true dream. A true prophet is to be listened to, but the false prophet is to be ignored. There is a term commonly used among Christian apologists known as syncretism. In short, it refers to the amalgamation of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought into one religious expression. A simple example of it is the mixing of Roman Catholicism with Santeria. Santeria is defined by Wikipedia saying, Santeria is also known as Regla de Oja, Regla Lukumi or Lukumi, is an African diasporic religion that developed in Cuba between the 16th and 19th centuries. It arose through a process of syncretism between the traditional Yoruba religion of West Africa and the Roman Catholic form of Christianity. This is not unique within the Roman Catholic Church. Rather, their adherents are found around the world to merge with cults of all types. And even what is considered mainstream Roman Catholicism is so tainted with heresies that it is, for the most part, actually Christian in name only. And I'll give you another point. I might bring this up in the Prophecy Update next week, but I might not, and so I'll tell you right now, is that the Pope has no authority at all now to appoint bishops in China. And because that's the case, that means that the Chinese will be appointing the bishops, and hence you have syncretism right there by default. 
This is worldwide with the Roman Catholic Church, and nobody seems to care about these things, but it is of the highest importance. The doctrines of Christ are taught to varying degrees within the Roman Catholic Church, but they are so completely intermingled with the unholy and profane that very few adherents truly follow Jesus Christ alone. There are some, but they are a very small minority. Whether the RCC throws in Mary, the saints, and even the Pope as intermediate access points to God, or whether the charismatic movement mingles in the supposed divine utterances of prophecies and angelic tongues, making those who claim such things intermediaries to the divine, or even to the evangelical movement when it claims special access to riches for its adherents through the prosperity gospel, all such claims are false. They are damaging and they pervert what is pure and good that stems from the Lord alone. Though what Moses is referring to here is a precept of the Old Covenant, the truth it conveys is something that is rightly to be applied to our own walk at all times. We are not to listen to such a prophet or dreamer of dreams, and we are to hold fast to the Lord and His Word alone. We are not to accept that which is false, even if it is mixed with some truth. But one might ask, if this person was aware of or actually made to happen the sign or wonder which came to pass, then how do we know that it wasn't that other God that did it? Moses tells them that such is not the case. Rather, verse 3 continues, For the Lord your God is testing you. Here the words go to the second person plural. For Jehovah your all, all your God, is testing you all. This will continue until the middle of verse 5. It is not that the entire congregation will be swayed, but that the people within the congregation will be. God is testing them in order, verse 3 continues, to know whether you love the Lord your God. The verb is a participle, and it gives the sense of that which is enduring and ongoing. Ladaat hayishkem ohavim et Yehovah Elohechem. To the end purpose of knowing you are loving Yehovah your God. This is important because it says in 1 Kings 3, verse 3, that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of his father David. However, in 1 Kings 11, it then says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father. Solomon loved the Lord, but it didn't continue. He wasn't loving the Lord This type of attitude is what the test of the Lord concerning such false prophets is intended to reveal. It is the Lord who called Israel. It is the Lord who established Israel. It is the Lord who led Israel. It is the Lord who has done all things for Israel. And it is Israel who have been called as his people. As this is so, their allegiance to him is to be to him alone. The test for all is whether they were loving towards him. Verse 3 continues, with all your heart and with all your soul. One can love in varying degrees. What the Lord calls for is to love him entirely, both with the intellect and reason and also with that which animates the person in his walk before the Lord. 
To love the Lord with one's intellect, meaning the heart in the Bible, but without the soul, is a person who is fickle, expressing love in mental assent, but whose actions fail to work in accord with that love. It would be the husband who loves his wife, but still chases after other women. To love the Lord with one's soul, that which animates the person in deed and action, but not with the intellect, is a person who is prideful, trusting that his actions are more important than truly seeking the essence of the Lord as its own prize. A person who loves with the heart and the soul is a person who is both in love with the Lord and who remains in love with the Lord in mind, in action, and in continued pursuit. Even unto death, he is and he will remain faithful to him. The way to obtain this precious state before the Lord is next stated by Moses after a short poetic break. Is this a word from the Lord? How can I know? What if this preacher is just snuffing me? Is his word true or is it untoward? Even so, to this puzzle, what is the key? How can I know if the words are false or if they are true? Please, what is the answer? Where is the key? From where comes the answer? What shall I do? What is the resolution that is escaping me? Wait, are you telling me that really is the key? Just read the word for myself? Is that what I'm to do? Yes! Why didn't that already dawn on me? Take it off the shelf and read it through and through. Yes, I shall take it off the shelf reading it through and through. If that is what it takes, that is what I shall do. Our second thought today from the house of bondage. It's verses 4 and 5. Verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God. This is set in contrast to verse 2, where the false prophet said, Let us walk after other gods. Here Moses says that they are to rather walk after the Lord your God. As always in the Bible, to walk signifies the conduct of one's life and actions. The path the Lord leads on, they are to follow. The precepts that he gives, they are to apply to their lives, and so on. Also, verse 4 continues, and fear him, and keep his commandments, and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. The Hebrew is more personal and emphatic, and the last verb bears a very strong emphasis. And him you all fear, and his commandments you all keep, and his voice you all obey, and him you shall serve, and to him you all shall surely hold fast. The same word used here, translated as hold fast, dabak, is used of Solomon when he clung to his foreign wives in love. In this, he was seduced away from the Lord to their false gods in the same manner that a false prophet will seduce away a person to following his false gods. The admonition is to devote everything that comprises the person into a heartfelt, intellectual, and physical pursuit of the Lord, clinging to him with every fiber of one's being. A review of the New Testament epistles, guess what? It reveals that the exact same expectations are given to us toward the Lord Jesus as are laid down by Moses here in the Law of Moses now. We are to walk in Christ, Colossians 2.6. We are to fear God, Colossians 3.22. We are to keep his commandments, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. We are to obey his gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. We are to serve him, 1 Corinthians 7.35, and we are to hold fast to him, Hebrews 10.23. It is through these things that we will be kept from being turned aside from him by false prophets or from any other distractions that will lead us down the wrong path. 
Unlike the false prophets of today, however, Israel had another obligation levied upon them that was intended to keep such people from constantly arising and leading the people astray. Verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Like verse 3, there's an emphasis in these words, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, the true prophet is contrasted to the false. The true prophet was to live while the false was to be put to death. The contrast was actually very important for Jeremiah, as he found out. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Mekah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. On the other hand, Elijah did what was according to the word of the Lord after he had proven the prophets of Baal false. It says in 1 Kings 18, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Score a big one for the winners. Such a false prophet was to be put to death. Verse 5 continues, because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God. Here, a new word in scripture is introduced, Sarah. It means turning aside, rebellion, defection, apostasy, and so on. It comes from the verb sur, meaning to turn aside. For Israel, in turning to a false god, the people had, by default, apostatized from following the true God. In this, any such attempt to do so was to be deemed a capital offense. Verse 5 going on, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage. As with every passage relevant to the relationship of the people to the Lord, Moses reminds them of why they were so obligated to him, stating that it is he who brought them out of Egypt, redeeming them from the house of bondage. With this in mind, it cannot go unstated that this is an exact parallel to what Christ did spiritually for us. Egypt pictures bondage to sin. Christ Jesus brought us out from that, having redeemed us from that house of bondage. Because of this, we have our own obligation to respond in the same manner to him as Israel did to Jehovah. He is the same God in both instances, and whether physical or spiritual bondage, we have been brought out. The major difference is that the Lord will judge the false prophets. Individually, we need to worry about our own relationship and let him deal with the others. As a church, we are to weed out the false teachers and expel them from our gatherings. Either way, Israel or the church, the false prophets have a set goal, which is, verse 5 going on, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. With the words of this clause, it returns to the second person singular. The intent of the false prophet is to turn Israel, the collective people, away from the Lord. What is said here reflects the same sentiment that Paul expressed towards the Galatians. False teachers had come into the church and were attempting to get them to go back under the law of Moses, thus rejecting the finished work of Jesus Christ. In this, Paul said, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Galatians 4.17 
The goal of the false prophet, false apostle, or false teacher is lehadichacha min haterek, to entice you from the way. It is always to a perverse path, and it always leads to a new form of bondage. The people can walk in the freedom of the Lord, or they can walk in the bondage offered by the false prophet. Nothing has changed from the time of the law until now in this regard. The false teachers of the church want control over the flock. It is a control of power, of money, of sex, or of the very souls of the people they mislead. But it is not the freedom offered by the Lord. If the teachers of the church want the best for the church, they will properly teach the core doctrines of the faith. They will teach freedom from the law, salvation by grace through faith with nothing else added, liberty and personal conduct, and yet in a proper and circumspect manner, eternal salvation, and so on. Anything else is a false teaching intended to bind the saints once again into a life that lacks true joy and eternal hope found in Jesus Christ. For those who teach otherwise, Moses says, and certainly what applies to the true church today as well, verse 5 finishes with, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. For Israel, it was a large pile of stones to be hurled at the offender until he was dead. For the church, it is to reject false ideology, expel false teachers, and to have nothing to do with the darkness they teach. We must hold fast to our values in Christ, and we are to pursue him and his word with all of our hearts and all of our souls to the glory of God. Of this passage today, Adam Clark says the following, which must be corrected. God permits such impostors to arise to try the faith of his followers and to put their religious experience to the test. For he who experimentally knows God cannot be drawn away after idols. He who has no experimental knowledge of God may believe anything. Experience of the truths contained in the word of God can alone preserve any man from deism or false religion. They who have not this are a prey to the pretended prophet and to the dreamer of dreams. Clark says, he who experimentally knows God cannot be drawn away after idols. I disagree. Solomon experimentally knew God. That is evident from his meeting with the Lord in 1 Kings 3 and again in 1 Kings 6. It is again evident from another meeting with him in 1 Kings chapter 9. And despite these occurrences, Solomon fell away to the point where this is recorded. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Clark says that experience of truths contained in the word of God can alone preserve any man from such things. This is true, but only to a point. What is correct is that complete, continued, and constant experience of the truths of God will do so. And even that must be mingled with a purposeful pursuit of the Lord as revealed there in a wholehearted devotion to that word. In other words, don't just read your Bible Read your Bible and read your Bible and never stop and then apply it to your lives or you are just as susceptible as Solomon was. Without these things being applied to our walk, it is not a maybe, but a certainty 
that we too will fall away from what is expected of us as we live out our lives in His presence. When I say a complete experience of the truths contained in the Word, I mean reading it from cover to cover. I mean knowing it in all that it says. I mean keeping it in the context of what is being said. Without this foundation, any person can say anything and claim it is the Word of God. And you? You have absolutely no reason to not believe Him. Unless you are versed in the Word, you are at the whims and leadings of any false teacher that comes along. If you learn nothing else from the teachings of this church, I would hope you would learn that premise. You must pursue this wonderful treasure, God's superior word, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. The Lord would ask you, and in fact, he would plead with you to do nothing less. And in fact, he has done just that through the words of Moses and Jeremiah and Paul and through the words of all of the other authors of Scripture. Listen to me. Pay heed to my word, be built up in my word so that you are not torn apart by savage wolves. This is the lesson of the false prophet. A word of the Lord is only the Lord's word if it comes from his word. And so know his word well. It is your safeguard until the day that he comes for his people. Jesus Christ came and he lived out the life that is recorded in this word. And as I said earlier, I think it was during the prophecy update, You cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing the Bible. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you cannot know the true God. One logically follows to the next. There is no source of information about Jesus anywhere on this planet except in the Bible and a couple of very obscure extra-biblical references that say nothing about the nature of God in redemptive history. You have to know Jesus in order to know God. You have to know your word in order to know Jesus. It is that simple. And if you don't know this word of God, you can be just like the people that followed after Joseph Smith or Charles Taz Russell or Ellen G. White or any of the other false prophets that have come along and pulled people away, not by the thousands, not by the tens of thousands, but even by the millions. That's why there's Jehovah's Witnesses today. That's why there are Mormons today. That is why there are Seventh-day Adventists today is because people did not know the word and they were unwilling to go and check that word. I may be wrong in my doctrine, and I pray that I'm not, but if I am, you need to know your word because you shouldn't be relying on me at all. I hope you'll take this exhortation, though, for sure, because what I'm telling you now, you need to do. Read your word and not get swept up in false doctrines. And there's one thing that I will tell you about knowing this word, is that you can't know if you're saved unless you know what this word says. There are a thousand gospels out there, people spewing them from pulpits all over the world every single day, and how few of them are the true gospel. It's so simple. Christ died for your sins, implying that you and I were all sinners. Christ was buried, telling you that he was dead. He wasn't just in a swoon. He literally died for your sins. And Christ rose again the third day, according to Scripture. Scripture testified to it. He did it, saying that he had no sin because the wages of sin is death. And he came out of the grave, proving he had no sin, and also proving in the same fell swoop that he is God incarnate. He is without sin. He is the fulfillment of the sign, the circumcision. Circumcise your children on the eighth day is not anything in and of itself. It's a picture of Christ's coming. The sin nature goes from Adam to his children, male and female, all the way down through redemptive history until Christ was born of a woman, but not of a man. And so the sin nature was cut. It was done. Sign fulfilled. This is the glory of what God did in Jesus Christ. And unless you know the Bible, you can be duped in a million different ways 
any given day of the week. Please first call on Jesus according to the gospel that I just gave you. Paul says that if you call on the name of the Lord, the one that I just described to you, you will be saved. Okay? Please do that today. That's the first thing. And then after that, read this word. You know what I had today? I'm not, I, I can't give you a name, but I had a person. I think it's probably a girl. It might be a guy. The name was very similar to my given name. Okay? And this person said, I'm in high school. I think it was high school, maybe junior high school. I'm going to a church, and I think there's something wrong there. And I thought, that is a rare human being, this big and wanting to know if what he or she is being taught is true. I got to tell you what, that is a person that is on the right path already. And so I gave my advice that I couldn't. I said, listen, I can't give you advice on what they said because you didn't didn't tell me, and I'm not going to just purposely say something. But there are certain doctrines that are being taught. And she said, I don't think these are right. And you said in some of your sermons that they are not right, such as female pastors. Okay, the Bible doesn't allow for that. She says, I think that they agree with that. I don't think they had any there, but I think that they agree with that. And she's, she's checking this out. Imagine that. Who here is doing that? Are you? There's a, a child this big emailing me that get further clarification on certain matters that she feels are important to her eternal existence when she's hardly started her earthly existence. Most people that age aren't thinking of anything on those levels. How proud I was to get that email. Please first call on Jesus and then know your word. Read it and study it and cherish it morning and evening and night all the days of your life. And it will keep you from the people that he is describing right here. Please do that. If nothing else, please commit to that in your life. I got a closing verse here for you from Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the lord sounds like what sergio does to me all the time and whatever you do in word or deed do it all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him next week is deuteronomy 13 6 through 18 this is how you are to trod somebody's got to fill in for jay today yes it is what you are to do it's entitled, You Shall Walk After the Lord Your God, Part Two. Part two. Thank you. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, Jay's not here, and I didn't know he wasn't going to be here, so something must have happened. But next time we have one of those, just everybody sing in there and override that guy. Let's have everybody having fun. Okay, I got a question for you and then a poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. I said during the sermon that at times prophets spoke and may not even realize the implication of their own words. An example of that is found in the New Testament when the high priest prophesied about Jesus. Where is that recorded, and what was he referring to? Wasn't Gamaliel? He wasn't the high priest. He was a teacher of Israel. Caiaphas is correct. Okay, and what did he prophesy? And what was it referring to? One must die. That's exactly right. So I have to give both of you guys a Maserati today because you got the name. You got the. He must, I'm going to read it to you so you know the context. All right, here's Caiaphas, the high priest, and he said something. And John explicitly says that the high priest prophesied this, and he certainly did not know what he was prophesying. He said a truth, 
but he didn't understand the implications of that truth. So I got to take you to John 11, and it's in verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He said that thinking we're going to get rid of this guy so that the Romans don't come and take us all away. When in fact, he was speaking on a completely different level. He had no idea. Now he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Imagine the high priest of Israel prophesying that the Gentiles, Jesus was going to die for the Gentiles. That would have been the last thing that he would have opened his mouth and uttered. He would never have said those words. He didn't know what he was saying, but he said them anyway. And the Lord used them as recorded in scripture. There you go. Good job, guys. Okay. Let's see here. We got a poem called You Shall Walk After the Lord Your God, Part 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he to you, a sign or a wonder, is conveying, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Yes, serve them and not the Lord alone. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Thus it is so. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments too and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So you shall do. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to from the Lord your God turn you away who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst, and you shall end that false prophet's talk. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the false prophet. And thank you that we can know if we just apply the word to our lives, we can know when to turn away from people that have a false message. And Lord, I would certainly pray that your spirit would go out among the churches of the people whose heart is right with you, even if their doctrine is not and that you would turn their heart to wanting to pursue your word so that they could understand the, the trap that they are in right now and get out of the false teaching that they're under or away from the false teacher that is trying to sway them from what is proper and sound. Lord, I would pray this because there are people that love your word that are just theologically confused, and they need to get away from that. Do a great work in this land and around the world in people's hearts, Lord, so that they will be right before you, not just in salvation, but in their walk from day to day, because then they will truly have the peace of the Lord that passes all understanding. We pray this to your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.